0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: This is Laura Stark at Vanderbilt University. I spoke with Noamie Toussaint at University College London about the book Edges of Exposure, Toxicology and the Problem of Capacity in Postcolonial Senegal. The book's about what's referred to as capacity in science research and public health, typically thought of as materials, personnel, infrastructure, skill, the stuff that's needed to get a job done. But the book observes that capacity also has what Toussaint calls temporal qualities. Timeframes stretch, pause or interrupted, suspend or speed up. And the material world of capacity also implies a direction which orient scientists to futures and specifically to possibilities of better futures. The book is based on Toussaint's fieldwork in Senegal from 2010 to 2011, studying professional toxicologists across three sites as they looked to more protective futures with their moral imaginations of, quote, responsibility and commitment. The book won the 2020 Ludwig Fleck Prize for Outstanding Book from the Society for the Social Studies of Science. And I think this award signals the book's broad relevance for anyone interested in critical studies of science, technology and health, intrigued by phenomenology of time, keen to combine training in history with ethnographic methods, or interested in postcolonial studies, especially Africa. In their interview, we also talk about the work of Gabrielle Hecht on exposure and imaginaries of Africa, Julie Livingstone on improvisation and slow risks, Joanna Crane on commodification and global health, and Monica Krauss on how NGOs perform worthy projects. The interview is a collaborative effort among myself and students at Vanderbilt University in the course American Medicine and the World. Well, this is Laura Stark at Vanderbilt University, along with students um, in the course American Medicine and the World. And we're really delighted to be talking with Professor Noemi Toussaint uh, about a book, Edges of Exposure, Toxicology, and the Problem of Capacity in post Colonial Senegal, which came out from Duke University Press. Thank you so much for making the time to talk with us. Um, And so I just wanted to start off by acknowledging that it's December of 2021, and we continue to be in the midst of a global pandemic. So um, given that we're speaking to you from the United States and the US South and you're in London um, and your interlocutors are in Senegal, I just wanted to ask how you're holding up and if you have any sense of how your interlocutors are doing in Senegal.
0: Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you, first of all, for for inviting me. I'm really honored. And from, from my brief and recent glimpse at some of the questions. um, I see, you know, I I see already in those questions a really uh, very attentive and generous uh, reading of my book. So I'm really, I'm already really honored. So thank you for that. Um in terms of the question, I mean, I, I don't know how much I have to say. I am I'm, I'm doing fine, thank you. That's also a very generous and <laughs> empathetic question. Um I am a bit I spent most of last year in Canada, so I'm a, a little bit still in shock at the differences and approach and you know, um I have obviously as you see in the book, very uh one of my interests is the question of protection and what protection means and who gets to be protected in what way. Um, and it's also a big theme in my in my current project, which I've been sort of doing quite intensively the last three and a half years. So, so a lot of food for thought in terms of you know different approaches. Um, I I haven't been able to go back to Senegal. I've I've heard things, but I think as a uh, sort of ethnographically oriented person I'm actually a historian by training but as a as someone who has it takes an ethnographic approach to things I, I find it very difficult to kind of guess or glean things from afar even though my my husband's actually spent quite a bit of time in Senegal and I still don't feel like I'm in a position to really say anything about um how things are going there but um certainly uh, at a very broad level um uh, Again, going back to the theme of the book, I think that the sort of expectation that you know things will will go well and be stable and that the future is predictable um, is not is not sort of you know equally distributed amongst different people. And I think how people experience these uncertain times um, also depends on their past experience of of kind of stability in a sense that they're that they are being protected by kind of political structures or economic structures or not. And I think in some ways, not to minimize the experience of many Africans, especially in places where, where, you know, um, the impact has been in terms in health terms has has been much more intense. Um, but, you know, I don't think we can really compare it's in, in terms of uh, what the impact is on sort of a general outlook of what the future will bring. So, um, so, yeah, that's, I think I'll stop there on that question.
1: Yeah, no, this is really, um, yeah, I really appreciate those insights. Um, So just to sort of get some nuts on and bolts out on the table about the book um, is that the topic of it um, really broadly is about uh, a struggle for capacity and specifically about toxic risk. And so my sort of shorthand for thinking about um, toxicity and toxicology is it's about poison. Um, And it's the science of the study of poisons and exposure to poisons um and then capacity the book is really about capacity and sort of naive understandings of capacity and then really these um fleshier or sort of time-bound ideas about capacity that we'll really be getting into um and before we go there i i just wanted to have you sort of pull out what you were mentioning about um Uh, not being able to make an overarching statement about uh, the pandemic, for example, based on any observations or insights from Senegal or a specific field site or something like that. And in terms, so in terms of method, Mm -hmm. just wanted to start there um, in thinking about the concerns around concepts like generalization and Mm -hmm. um, design strategies like comparisons. And so one of the things that you write about really, really nicely to launch off the book is about how the positionality of the global north sort of bends people to erroneously and unjustly um, in sort of a racist kind of way. Think about Africa in terms of a more limited range of experiences that are possible. So for example, things like mm. what Rob Nixon calls slow motion risks um, and people like uh, Julie Livingstone and Gabrielle Hecht write about in terms of the possibility of cancer, something that's really long-term and a, like a lower level detection that is just not possible um, or it's it's not in the imaginary about Africa. So just to start off, could you talk about how you envision the research design of the book in terms of generalizability, um, the idea of comparison, and what it means for how the concepts are transferable to other sites.
0: Yeah, that's a big question, <laughs> um, but, a, but a good one. Um, if I can say, I mean, I I, I came to this topic in a, very kind of exploratory, almost, I wouldn't say haphazard, but I didn't, this is a kind of very rare experience in the life of a researcher where I didn't have to kind of plan and design the project beforehand. Um, I was really kind of given carte blanche to to go out and do a project and I didn't have to sell it to anyone before having before going because I I kind of got a position as part of a broader project that was already funded so I didn't have to you know when you're a PhD student you have to you know do a proposal and convince your supervisors and the department that your project is doable normally we need to get funding so we have to convince funders of the same things, we have to set out or questions that our approached. In this case, I was I was really given a, a lot of freedom, um, and really just kind of set out to study a group of scientists without having questions about toxicity, even about capacity, already formulated before going there. And I think that's that's I'm you know digressing a bit, but I think that background is really interesting, um, important to understanding how how I approached. Um, it, the, the, the sites that where you know where I did research and observed and it could really so the that theme of temporality and of capacity really came out of what people were telling me about their work about the frustrations they experienced about what they wish how they wish things could be better for them um so in that kind of approach I don't think is it's it's very difficult to generalize because it's a kind of rare luxury to be able to go and sort of you know, really let the themes emerge from from the field. And that, you know, unfortunately, because that's sort of part of the political economy of research. Um, On the other hand, I think that attention that my own sort of research participants, the the people who I sort of observed and and spoke to, um, those themes brought to my attention. I think those are, that would be my message to other researchers is, you know, pay more attention to these kinds of, questions about, um, so you, you mentioned sort of capacity, how I try to, um, kind of flesh it out into something that is, that is, um, sort of more lively and dynamic, which is, which is something that you've just pointed out, but also, um, that's not just about kind of producing, um, knowledge and, um, and sort of having the equipment, to do it, the scientific equipment to do it, but something that has kind of political and moral valence. So it's about sort of the power to act in the world, to shape it, to uh, to create different kinds of futures. And that can mean, you know, a very limited sense in terms of building a career, or it can mean, you know, your power to transform society. Um, so I think that kind of notion of what capacity, sort of approach capacity is, both something that's dynamic and kind of emic and, you know, ethnographic terms that people define what it means for themselves in their, in their practice, in their aspirations. Um, I think those are um, kinds of questions that haven't been asked enough in, in kind of anthropology of uh, science um, or, or of medicine. And I think that would be sort of, if I could pull out one thing that I think was generalizable was that And the kind of particular method that I ended up taking, um, which um, sort of combines material conditions and very kind of close attention to material conditions with these stories and desires and aspirations and kind of nostalgia and sort of uh, the more sort of narrative account of what those conditions meant to people. Um, so that's also kind of methodology that is something I think that is, that is transferable.
1: Yeah, great. Thank you for that, and I I want to emphasize that we weren't encouraging you to generalize uh, necessarily, <laughs> but interested in thinking about your research methods, given that um, the standards of of uh, you know a scientific approach um, is not really. Uh, the direction that you're going and, oh, uh,
0: no. in yeah. no no and it's we... not about sort of you know describing a situation that, that can then be compared to another situation but more about and I think that's true for you know a lot of anthropologists but more about sort of ways of thinking about how you describe sort of very singular realities and how you approach those and so there there's a kind of toolbox about how to observe and how to formulate your questions and how to Interpret that—that—that that, that I think is what we generally think of as being generalizable, as opposed to the the findings um, um, that that come out of using that approach to those
1: questions. Yeah, great, great, great. Yeah, um, Catherine's group also had a question about research methods that really builds um, in this in this direction because your um, your methods ecologically are also really interesting. Um, so Catherine, I'm going to invite you to hop in. Yeah, for sure. Um, so we were wondering about how, um, in chapter four of your book, you kind of discuss the importance of developing Senegal-specific research methods and how those methods were integral in preserving research interest and funding. Um,
0: I think many people in this class are intending to do research in the future and perhaps even overseas. Do you think there's um, one right way to integrate area specific ecosystems, institutions, and practices in our research endeavors? Or are there like a few good ways? That's, that's a growth. That's a really good question. Um, a really complex one. Um, I would definitely go for, you know, there is no, there's no one right way. And, and the, the kind of only right way is to never be sure you're, you have the right way. (laughs) So you could sort of constantly be asking yourself what is right, not just for me as a researcher, but for, um, the people whose realities you're, you're trying to kind of do justice to. So, um, I remember a long time ago, uh, someone had mentioned as a kind of quality of like, when, you know, you've done good research and you've kind of told a good account of, of something ethnographically is when, um, the people whose lives you're describing both recognize themselves. Um, and, and, Sort of see something new. They learn to see themselves and their situation differently. So you you need you know to do justice to what is particular about an area and what is what is considered to be kind of good relations or good sort um, of and kind of accu- accurate, not in the scientific way, but accurate in the way that you're sort of telling accounts that that people see themselves in. Um, and at the same time kind of pushing it to, to obviously you're you know trying to bring something new uh, to your description. That's I, I know that's a kind of very vague and theoretical answer as opposed to like, you know, um uh you know, oh well, you need to you know talk to these people and ask those people what they think and you know obviously you have to consult, you have to dialogue, and but it's it's less about a kind of procedure to follow um, you know, and then there are other things like, you know, you have to be familiar with the history of a place and take time to get to know it. And, you know, all these kind of tips and, and things. But I think the most important thing is to really be constantly asking yourself, okay, what is it about this place that I'm trying to capture and how do I, how can I be in this place in a way that allows me to do that?
1: Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, and I just want to um, sort of underscore uh, with Catherine and everyone else that uh, the idea of living in, of working in good relation, um, um, seems to be perhaps the most important um, thing to, to to take into a field. In addition to, um, I think something that you did just you flag, but maybe we um, could just. I don't know, think through people like um, Joanna Crane has a really remarkable book, Scrambling for Africa, that really shows um, the effects, but also does the ethnography on really short term uh, uh, sort of helicopter research into a field. And so I almost feel like the time element, take the time there.
0: Absolutely. No, and that's something, you know, I'm sort of, you know, giving a sort of introductory lecture to ethnography. That's, that's what I really try to emphasize. I mean, this is time. Time means so many different things in terms of um, it's both a kind of epistemological tool because you have to learn how to see, how to learn, how to, so you're so you're not sort of getting at what's going on unless you take the time to learn slowly how to how to see that so that's and that's part of you know classic descriptions of ethnography uh, but also in a more ethical sense you're you know that cultivating good relations and that doesn't mean not being critical or not bringing something new i mean it's i think that's important too not to um, um you know, cause we're also, I think often, so, you know, in general we want, we want to uh, sort of explain the effects of political and economic conditions and in, in, and show the effects of kind of global inequality, but there are a lot of, lo- there's a lot of local inequality. So you're saying kind of elite scientists or in my case. Now I'm working more on sort of more direct sort of medical research and healthcare. And, um, and they're, they're kind of, you know, very different groups of, people working together and you want to um, sort of very critically account for the effects that some people's perspectives have on others um but also kind of in a way be kind of empathetic and do justice to each of their worlds at the same time and that so i just want to emphasize this kind of you know taking the insider perspective or or and and being in good relations and sort of cultivating those long-term relationships doesn't mean that you're not be that you can't ask some difficult questions about the power relations that you observe as well. Um, so yeah, just wanted to throw that in there.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, g- good relations doesn't mean that um, sort of superficial, necessarily easy conversation yeah. all the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, So just sort of to also talk through a few more nuts and bolts of the book itself. So you're following these toxicologists. These are the people you're uh, staying in good relation with as well as many other people. And so your strategy is to specifically follow them across three different types of sites. So university laboratories, a national um, uh, 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 toxicology detection center, um, a public, a publicly funded one, and then some other uh, more privately funded sites. And um, in thinking about sort of research design and timing, I mean the book is about um, timing and temporal and temporality in general. So I wanted to actually have you talk through for us um, your conception and your work around capacity, because as we were first um, sort of mentioning. Um, that capacity is at a at a superficial level, often understood in terms of how much or whether there are material resources, there are staff and there are skills available to get a certain job done. Um, but what you're doing in capacity with your work on capacity is linking this material aspect, this material definition of capacity, um, to something that is that has a temporal quality which is which is your phrasing the temporal quality and there's two qualities in particular you write about directionality and you write about rhythms and so these are things like waiting interruptions prolongments these kinds of um Uh, squishy time elements that have everything to do exactly what you're able to show by spending so much time in the field. So I just wonder whether you could sort of point to us about how the material world actually implies a temporal quality to it. It implies a direction and a rhythm.
0: Uh, Yeah, I think I'm I'm a bit, so I just have to, you know, point out I wrote this book you know, a few years ago, and I've now been sort of three and a half years deep into another project. So sort of bringing, bringing some of those small details back, um, I kind of have to jog my memory, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I so there, there's a kind of very uh, kind of concrete, specific answer to that. Yeah,
1: go ahead. Yeah. So just, just to give an example, can you maybe talk about um, uh, the aspect of like repairing things uh, yeah, well, how that how that relates to sort of temporality like what it is about a thing that needs to be repaired that has a temporal quality to it it wants something
0: yeah <laughs> yeah I mean I, I was going to say more you know if when you when you listen to to um scientists um you know and I did both kind of oral history interviews with with People who are sort of retired or at, at the end of their careers, sort of talking more about the past. Other people talking about sort of what what uh, what they hope the, their work would become in the near future. And um, in listening to them talk about equipment, so you know they they'd give these accounts of sort of okay you know we used to have this machine it worked really well and we could do this and that and that with it and then it broke down or this one's you know only part of it is broken but we can't get um we don't have the money to hire someone to come from Belgium to repair this component of it so it's basically you know as good as as non-functional or so I what I noticed is that when they were talking about you know these very concrete things um, and and what they could or couldn't do them with them or used to be able to do but could no longer do or might again be able to do in the future. Um, they were also talking about sort of how they experienced kind of futuri- futurity in general um, in relation to you know their careers in relation to the possibility of kind of, Having a research program that would be cumulative. So it wasn't just a bunch of different little disjointed projects where they could sort of produce some results and publish and maybe a low level journal, but sort of build something up over time. And what I realized sort of through that is that, um, first of all, that kind of inequality, you know, differences in access to material resources for science, so the equipment, the funding to go do, you know, do field research or to buy new equipment or to hire staff. Um, that translated into not just, you know, the material environment, what you could do with it, but these different sort of experiences of broader, um, broader time. Um, so you could get a sense of the impact of, again, sort of political economic conditions through these accounts of how, you know, a machine related to the kind of rhythms of science and where it might be going. So that's the directionality, and you know these uh, again, sort of coming back to my answer to an earlier question: this sort of capacity to shape futures, to to act in the world, to maybe change things, to protect people. So that's again, you know, in, in because toxicology is um, generally uh, kind of regulatory or pre-regulatory science, that that sense of kind of regular monitoring is very important to achieving protection. It's not just about sort of um, uh, being able to analyze some particular event, but being able to kind of constantly be checking for levels of something somewhere that, you know, that's what sort of protection amounts to. And I realized that sort of all these things that they were talking about are more or less taken for granted, in, you know, by scientists who have, you know, who may complain about the lack of research funding or about the you know the fact that they might not be replaced certain equipment, but there's a certain sort of basic temporality of science that most um, scientists who do work in fairly well-resourced environments do, do take for granted um, and they just couldn't. So yeah, I'm, I'm sort of weaving around the, the question, but, um, so to me, the, so, so the, the connection between sort of the material and the temporal is a way of getting at, you know, political, economic effects and inequalities. And, and it's describing the very subtle, sometimes nuanced effects of that. Um, so, you know, having to having to wait for your next project rather than being able to kind of go out and make it happen much sooner expecting that it will just keep happening or, you know, there, there sort of, there's a lot happening in that in terms of how people experience what it means to be a scientist, what it means to be able to act as a scientist. Um,
1: yeah. Yeah. That's really helpful. Sort of holding on this, um, on this point, the um, one of the things you're getting at in or showing us with this specificity of Senegal and, uh, and a low resource setting. Um, It's also about um, public funding. So that, so public taxpayer money um, for toxicology. And here I'm going to ask um, Jared to hop in with a question. Yeah, sure. So
0: on that note, in chapter five of your book, you mentioned that public health issues like tuberculosis or AIDS were put above toxicology research in terms of public health funding. So I was wondering, you know, based on your own experiences with Senegalese toxicologists,
1: how do you think that they would prefer to allocate public funding to all of these different medical fields in order to really maximize impact?
0: Great question. Um, I think that most people and you know it's always hard to speak for people and to, to and to and to guess what they think but um most people if you ask them sort of well how do you think funding because I mean that's that's a not just my observation but you know we know that there's there's sort of big money or there was it's changing but there were you know big global health funding for certain um, for 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 certain things that have been deemed to be important at a kind of central global level. So there's a kind of global agenda that, that makes this funding available. Um, and that there are you know, a lot of things that fall through the cracks or that are in the kind of shadow or neglected um, in 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 the margins of those issues. So you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not the first person to write about that. And Julia Livingston's book is a really good example of that sort of on cancer. Um, what I think people would say is, is um, we wish someone would ask us what we found important. So I can't guess what they think is important, but I would guess that they think it's important that they be asked. Um, and um, it, so now I'm doing a very different project. That's about kind of liver cancer and hepatitis B. And, you know, I, I um, went out into a rural area and just spoke to uh, nurses who had, um health posts so sort of the first level of healthcare, care primary health care um, and um and they were just so pleased that someone would come to talk to them about something that wasn't tb hiv or um kind of maternal infant care not that they didn't think those things were important and they may actually decide if they had a limited budget that they needed to allocate that those were actually the most important things and, probably not, I think they'd have a different distribution, but it doesn't really matter what the answer is, it's the fact that you're asking the question. Um, so yeah, coming back to the issue of kind of public funding or national versus kind of global funding, it's very, a lot of researchers have showed how difficult it is to kind of tease those apart because um, ministries of health will tend to define their programs and priorities with the knowledge the expectation that there is more funding for certain things than others so it's very hard to sort of say okay you know this is the national agenda this is the global agenda this is where they clash and you know this is how we might see things differently um, because the effects are so wide-reaching of those priorities being defined
1: elsewhere that's such a great a great point there's a, an, another book that i like called the good project which is about how NGOs um, actually evaluate um, sort of ministries of health project applications in order to allocate fundings. And just, just amplifying exactly what you said and exactly what you found is that the, the project, sort of the on the ground priorities aren't defined in terms of what is actually needed. It's defined in terms of what they know the funder will think is a good project. It's really interesting. Um, so, sort of extending this um, more, also thinking about entrepreneurialism
0: mm-hmm.
1: around funding issues. I'm going to hand the floor over to Nathan to ask a group question. Great, thanks. Uh, so, in uh, in Chapter Four of Edges of Exposure, you mentioned Project Locust Talks, and basically. Uh, do you think that you could describe this project and sort of delve into how research infrastructures can be created through entrepreneurial ventures?
0: Yeah, sure. Thanks for that. Um, so Project Luxus Talks actually started as um, sort of international publicly funded uh, project. So it, it initially um, it was um, FAO, which is the um, you know, UN's Agriculture Organization um, kind of channeling funding from national governments for this project that was about um, um, sort of evaluating the the toxicity of different um, chemical p- compounds used to control locusts, which is why it was called locust tox. So after these very big locust invasions, a lot of pesticides were used and um, they said, "Well, we, we actually need to evaluate their toxicity in these very specific ecologies because we can't necessarily rely on um, evaluations of toxicity that were done in labs and other or in other countries." Um, so, so I, I, you know, so part of that chapter was really just describing what an interesting project that is, um, and so the entrepreneurialism comes in a bit later, where where um, the kind of project funding gets cut and you know they, they come to the end of this project. And what's really interesting is it goes, this project goes through different phases with um, with uh, scientists and particularly Dutch scientists who are kind of really invested in, really argue for the project to keep going on the basis of the kinds, sort of how, how really knowledge has to be cumulative and build up over time and how they have to they can't just drop, you know, drop it, and um, have to kind of really, uh, yeah, you know, that these investments were made, and they really need to kind of keep going further, which which is really interesting. But anyway, and then and then that you know, in the more recent past, they need to, um, in order to maintain all this capacity that was built, um, they um, they sort of encourage a more entrepreneurial approach to sort of selling privatized uh, pesticide funding so they end up that the lab that was doing the analyses of pesticide residues in sort of plant materials as part of this ecotoxicological research so very much a small part of a kind of broader set of knowledge about how pesticides act in the environment they also encountered you know counting the number of insects in a particular Patch, so it wasn't isolated knowledge just about pesticide residues, and then it becomes that they kind of use that lab then to sell services, Um, and some of the same people are still there. So you really get the sense of how, you know, they have to do this to, to, kind of maintain that capacity active, Um, but this is really not what they want to be doing, and it really is as meaningful to them, and they can't. It's not cumulative, and it's not being connected to this broader project. And um, so I'm not really saying that much about entrepreneurialism. I, I kind of, I, I think I say a little bit more in the uh, chapter five on the kind of poison control center, which which is publicly funded, but where um, the the people running it are put in a position where they really have to kind of take this um, kind of business like approach to to some selling their project to, to keep it going because the public funding is so uncertain and so and so um, kind of slow and um, and because there's so much competition for funding as well so um, and these are themes that you find you know in general not just in in, in kind of resource poor areas I think there's been a lot of writing about uh, kind of effects of Neoliberal restructuring of uh, science, of the university, of research. So these kind of themes of uh, the entrepreneurial scientists um, are, they pop up in a lot of people's analyses. Um, but I think there's, yeah, something particular about the relation between the public and the private in these kind of settings where um, where resources are just sort of more scarce and uncertain.
1: Great, great, great. Um sort of building on this, um, I just wanted to uh, also flag that we're close on time. So I just wanted to, um, to ask you to take, take, take advantage of you while you're here um, to ask a few more questions um, before we say goodbye, just really quickly. So the book came across my radar for the first time because it was honored by um, the Society for the Social Studies of Science. So I know that not only us, but um, a lot of people will be looking um, looking forward to the, the work that you're now doing that you just were talking about on liver cancer and hepatitis B. Um, and so there's often from one project, something that is in the kernel there that inspires the next project. So on, um, on this note, sort of on the bonus cuts of your ethnographic research, I wanted to hand the floor over to, to uh, Julia and Julia's group. Um, in your group, uh, sorry, in your book, you bring up that a lot of your information relied on ethnographic research. Um, do you have any personal favorites that barely made the cutoff that you
0: can share with us? Yeah, that's that's also a great question. I'm sure normally I think people would love to answer that because there's so much you're sort of sad that you weren't able to to put in. Um I think in my case, I'm, I'm a little bit too far from it to really have a sense of that and it was I mean it 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 it, um I didn't really have to cut that much I mean I had to condense but but um but I didn't really have to cut cut examples that I really uh wanted to put in um what I can I think where I can answer and it's it speaks to to kind of how you set this question up Laura um is in terms of sort of the kernel that I want to extend—it's more about what I wish I could have done—and um, I think that's what I'm trying to build on in in this project. And so, um, I think you really rightly point out. And sort of, some people think the book is about sort of toxicity and measuring toxicity, and some people think it's really about capacity. And I tend to agree more with the people who are think it's about capacity. For me, that's really um, what the book is about, and the and the toxicity. Dimension mentioned comes in as not just one example amongst others, I mean, it's a specific kind of example because it's linked to kind of the state and public protection and, and a sense, you know, um, a science in which you're not just trying to innovate kind of new ways of producing uh, knowledge, but also kind of trying to do a job that has this impact on, on um, you know, how much people know about the risks in their environment. Um, but because, you know, a lot of people ask me questions about, about toxicity, about, um, protection, I think those were themes that I really wanted to build on. So, um, you know, I wish I could have also within the scope of that project. Um, so I open with this example about, um, a particular sort of instance of, uh, lead poisoning that, um, that occurred in a neighborhood in Dakar that was related to um, battery recycling. Um, and, and I also asked a lot of questions, you know, how do people on the ground conceptualize toxicity and protection? I was like, I don't know, because I couldn't, I, I didn't have time to go there and I would have, and it would have required a whole other project. I don't think it's something that could have just been sampled. Um, and um, so those are those are the kinds of questions and the kind of things that I wish I could have researched to then put in the book. So it's not like I did this research that I then had to kind of put aside, but um, but that that I wish I could have done also that research. Um, and to some extent, um, I'm not I'm dealing with some sort of aspects of toxicity and sort of dealing with the I mean, the very, very challenging questions when you're talking about toxicity, that's not necessarily um perceived or hasn't been measured, hasn't been monitored, isn't part of public debate. So the challenges are still there, um, but I think I'm um, trying to uh, address questions of protection and risk much more head on with this current project. So that's the kind of kernel that gets of that sense of not having done enough in the, in the previous project that I'm bringing to this one.
1: Yeah, thanks for that. Um, for our for our last question, I just wanted to um, hand the floor over to Niti and and her group um, to talk with you a bit about um, about this issue of. The link between your research effects and how it relates to whether there's actually been changes on the ground. And it does sound like one of the continuities between the uh, edges of exposure, sort of the book that we we're reading and, and your current work, is that they're both centered and orbiting around Senegal as well. Um, so here I'll hand it over to Niti. Hi, yeah, so I
0: um... We were just
1: wondering if you had had the opportunity um, in the last couple of years since the book had been written to potentially go back to Senegal in any capacity, um, and if you had seen any
0: positive or negative change in the systems involved? Yeah, I mean, I, I, um, I, I didn't do a kind of formal follow-up research on a particular sort of sites and people, but I have, you know, tried to keep in touch with them. Um, they've been they've been quite interested in in the published book and in, in work. I mean, in, in the book, in terms of kind of telling their own history, especially this more recent, this the poison control center that sort of is starting to develop and sort of um, being able to kind of give account of how it came about. Um, and and they seem to be doing fairly well. There's there's some. There's, I think, um, more interest, and that would be something that I would need to kind of find out how after the, in the, you know, in this ongoing pandemic, um, what, what's happening with that. But there was certainly in 2018, 2019, which is the last um, time I was in Senegal um uh growing interest i think in issues of toxic exposure in africa and in, in in general so air quality monitoring um is something that is happening not as densely as elsewhere but there is um some interest and some funding um for that so i think uh, things are changing in terms of the the, the uh, people in, and institutions that i studied are um remaining active and, and are, are sort of keeping themselves going. Um, so yeah, I think that's a
1: yeah, thank you so much for your time. You've been really generous. Um, and uh, we've mentioned it a few times, it's come up for you a few times that the book, the field work was done in uh, 2010, 2011. Um, and it's been a few years since it's been published, and it's put awards and all these <laughs> things. Um, and I think it's noteworthy that it, we, we nonetheless take it to be deeply relevant right now and especially as we even think and hear about um, the COVID-19 pandemic and thinking in terms of what you're showing about capacity that is not just about whether the resources are there or not there, but, but capacity has this temporal element of waiting, of functioning, of all of these elements that are really important to pay attention to, to, to understand the context of global health. So thanks so much for a really enduring book. Really appreciate it.